I've entitled this today, The Darkest Hours Just Before Dawn. The darkest hour is just before dawn. You know, the problems we are dealing with oftentimes can seem worse at night. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe it's because of loneliness. Maybe it's because of our imagination gets out of hand. I remember as a boy laying in bed and um, my closet would be open and I would be able to look in. And it's funny how those hanging clothes took on the form of ghoulish beings which really were not there, right? And you look at the same thing in the morning once the sun is up and it's not an issue. Some things, though, serious things, issues we're dealing with, sometimes seem somewhat better when the sun comes up. Now, in light of the message today and what we're talking about, the coming tribulation period is not our imagination. And it is, in fact, the darkest hour in all of human history, according to what Jesus said. I want you to stop and think about what I just said. The coming tribulation period, which could take place very soon, folks, in the world in which we live, it is the worst and darkest hour in human history. That's what Jesus said about it. It is true. But as horrific as it is, when the sun shows up, S-O-N, there will be ultimate blessing. There will be a battle, there will be a judgment, and then he will rule and reign forever and ever. And uh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Now, you know the theme of Joel, getting ready for the day of the Lord. The New Testament talks as well about the day of the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 5.1, Paul says, "'But of the times and the seasons, brethren, "'you have no need that I write unto you.'" For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. In other words, unexpectedly, it'll come upon the world. Now, understand this. The reason it comes as a thief in the night is because the rapture has just taken place. And the people of the world maybe have heard of it, but they haven't believed it. And they didn't expect it because there are no signs for the rapture. By the way, come tonight. I'm going to give you seven reasons tonight up at Camp Jim why we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Because this is really a very important doctrine. Say, well, it's, it's not that important. It's vitally important. Come tonight, and I'm going to give you seven reasons for that. But anyways, this period is coming, and the day of the Lord comes suddenly because the rapture comes suddenly. And the day of Christ is the rapture, immediately followed by the day of the Lord. But it's going to come on everyone. It'll be a surprise, okay? So we could be here in church, and I could be going through this message, and even today, and I love doing that. I love to see people just like that. Our audio people aren't too crazy about it, but blown out more speakers that way. But the rapture is going to take place suddenly, and what follows is the day of the Lord. Folks, after the rapture, chaos will take place on this planet for a certain period of time. We don't know how long it's going to take for them to get some sort of a pseudo-peace in the world. That's when the Antichrist will come to power. By the way, the Antichrist, there's no mark of the beast until the beast is here. 
So don't start saying this thing's the mark of the beast and that thing's the mark of the beast. No, what we're seeing are precursors to that. We're seeing things that are conditioning us and seeing how easily the mark of the beast can be put into place and going, but it's not here yet. So keep that in mind. It comes as a thief in the night. Look at this. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now that sounds a lot like Joel. That sounds a lot like Jeremiah. That sounds a lot like Ezekiel. Okay? So what are we talking about? Well, let me mention the first thing this morning is we're going to be talking about the darkness of the day of the Lord. And we're going to show you a chart that we've shown you many times before. Those of you who are live streaming, we get comments sometimes say, I wish I could see the chart, okay? If you're patient, you will see it on YouTube. Our guy, Jeff Smoley, does an amazing job putting these things on YouTube. But here we are today, there was the first coming of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And then after that, the people of the day didn't know that there was something in between here and the tribulation period and the kingdom, Okay, the church age, which is where we live today, was a mystery. The Bible says it was a mystery. That means it was a truth not revealed until the right time. And so once the church began in Acts chapter 2, and then God started manifesting his plan and showing his plan, okay, he showed it somewhat. He, He kind of started talking to Peter about it, but certainly it was really manifested to the apostle Paul. And he wrote a lot about the details of what the church is. It's a called out assembly of both Jew and Gentile. The mystery, the mystery of the church is that there would be one body made up of Jew and Gentile. That's according to Ephesians chapter 3. And so here we are in the church age. Now the next event before this takes place, now we see in the world there are signs for the tribulation period. We see we're quickly approaching that. The greatest of all is that Israel is back in the land. The tribulation could not take place until Israel is back in the land. They are back in the land. But before that takes place, the rapture of the church is going to take place. Okay? And when is that going to take place? It's an imminent event. That means it could take place at any moment. How far back does this go? It goes all the way back to the days of the apostles. The Bible writers taught very clearly. Jesus taught. John 14, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he starts the passage with what? Let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. He was talking to his disciples. So he wanted them thinking in terms of they would see the rapture. This was not an invention by John Darby in the 1800s. It's in the word of God. So the rapture, we're going to go up at the rapture. Then this day of the, the day of the Lord begins here and it goes through here from right after the rapture to the end of the kingdom. Now I had somebody write in and they said, well, I don't believe the kingdom is part of that. Well, if you read 2 Peter, though, what takes place in 2 Peter chapter 3, it talks about the day of the Lord, and it is very clear that what 2 Peter is talking about is the destruction 
of the heaven and the earth. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. So that would have to take us to the end of the millennium. I just thought I'd throw that out there to let you understand how all this fits together. Okay? Now, this, the judgment of the nations, we're going to be studying that in Joel. We're going to find that in the book of Joel. But where are we here? We are very close to this right here. Then the tribulation. This is why it comes as a thief in the night, because this takes place. Those who are unbelievers will be left behind. And it is going to be a shocking world, never to be the same again, never to be the same again. So let's talk about, number one, the darkness of the day of the Lord. Let's go over to Joel chapter 2. We have seen that God is going to harshly and severely judge the world during the coming tribulation period. Last week, we saw some of the judgments that the Lord is going to pour out on those that dwell upon the earth, from the Jews to the Gentiles. It doesn't matter. Yes, it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but the unbelievers are going to be on the planet, and they're going to suffer just as well. And of course, they deserve the judgment as well because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. While there is a present understanding in the book of Joel concerning judgment that Israel would face during Joel's day, and as you know, as we've gone through it, there are sometimes several layers to what Joel is talking about. There's issues of the present day or the soon-to-come day of Joel, and then there's also the prophetic picture. So there is that, but we are primarily focused on the future judgments. And I think, beginning in chapter 2 to the end of Joel, it's mainly thinking in terms of the future judgments. Joel 2, verse 12, it says, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, Turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. And we talked about what all that means last time. Now, while this could refer to the Assyrian invasion, which happened during the reign of King Hezekiah, which took place in 701 BC, that's also, you can read about that in Isaiah 36 and 37. It also is a prophetic scenario in view of Israel being invaded from the northern countries, including, by the way, see, prophetically. It may be talking about Assyria in Joel's day, but remember, Assyria is the area of where Iran is today. And Iran is an arch enemy of the nation of Israel. And they, of course, will be part of the Gog and Magog invasion in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? See, the tribulation period is going to be a time where Israel will be under such persecution, folks, worse than the Holocaust. Worse than the Holocaust. And they will be crying out, And people, where's the God of Israel? Has God forsaken Israel? By the way, no, he hasn't. 
Which leads us to our second point, and it is this. The armies of Israel will continue to attack over time, but the Lord will ultimately deliver Israel and preserve them. Listen closely. Listen closely. The God of the Bible is pro-Israel. All right? The God of the Bible has not forsaken his people whom he has chosen. He will not do that. They are his chosen people. He will bless them and he will prosper them, but that's going to take place yet in the future during the kingdom age. God has made an unconditional covenant with Israel and will continue to work through them as a nation. Listen again. The church did not replace Israel. They are separate. Israel is Israel. The church is made up of Jew and Gentile. But Israel has not been replaced. That's what your covenant theology and reform theology, a lot of them believe, not all of them, but a lot of them believe that. That is false. And can I tell you this? That is just one baby step away from anti-Semitism. Because if you think that God has rejected Israel because of their rebellion towards God, then there's a good chance you're going to see Israel from a negative perspective and not from the Bible perspective. Now, I'm not saying they're saved today. And I'm not saying they're godly today. All I'm saying is they, as a nation, they have been preserved by God for thousands of years, and he's not through with them. He's going to continue working with them. God has made an unconditional covenant and will continue to work through them as a nation. Even though they have been terribly unfaithful to him, he will never be unfaithful to them. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. Look at this. It says this, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. You notice, it isn't because they're impressive. As a matter of fact, he says in other places of the Bible, now he doesn't use this word, but he basically says, listen, I chose you not because you're impressive. There's nothing about you. I chose you because I chose you. By the way, that has nothing to do with going to heaven or hell. It has to do with their God chose to work through a certain nation and people. That's all it means. He chose to work through them. That doesn't determine heaven or hell for anyone. You notice it, 1 Samuel 12, 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. You might say, well, yeah, but wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's Old Testament. What about New Testament? I'm glad you asked. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 11. See, this is wonderful because it's an unconditional covenant. Guess what? It's the same truth in the new as it is in the old. Why? Unconditional. Dispensations come and dispensations go. But this is something that transcends all of that. Romans 11.1, 1, Paul says, I say then, by the way, he was a Jew. He was a Jew, but he was a saved Jew. I say then, hath God cast away his people? Some people today say, oh, yeah, yeah, he's cast away. You know what, friend? Quit reading books and read the Bible. It's so simple. It's not complicated. A first grader can get this. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not cast away his people. 
The tribulation, remember, it's the time of Jacob's trouble, but God is still involved with Jacob. He's still working through Jacob, and he's going to bless the world through Jacob, as he has. So leads us to our third point, and it is this, the future blessing of the kingdom age. The future blessing of the kingdom age, okay? Can we have that chart up again? Let's show that future events chart one more time. Let me show this to you. When is he going to remember? Now, here we are. What's next is the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation period, where he is going to chasten, he is going to persecute, he is going to basically bring them to their knees as a nation, and of course the world as well. Jesus is going to come back, the Messiah, when he comes back. Zechariah says the Jewish people will look upon him whom they have pierced. They'll recognize him, and they will receive him. Those who believe, they'll receive him as their Messiah. He'll come back. There will be a judgment there. This is where Armageddon takes place. And he'll come back, and then he's going to rule and reign. During that millennial kingdom is when he will be pouring out the blessings we're talking about here in this passage. They will experience it. Verses 18 through 32, we see the future of Israel. Go back there, Joel 2.18. They will be blessed once again after Jesus comes to deliver them from the tribulation. They will see blessing and incredible prosperity during the kingdom age of the millennium, as will the entire earth, okay? Through Israel, blessings come to everybody. By the way, if uh, you happen to be here today and you have swallowed the poison of the world system and false religion, and you are against Israel, or you think, well, those Jews are the problem with the world. They're not the problem of the world. The problem of the world is the devil and the flesh. I challenge you with something. Do you want to see how God has used the Jewish people? I'm not talking about saved Jews. I'm talking about the Jewish people, period. Look at all the things that God has brought into this world that are wonderful blessings, especially in the fields of science and medicine and so forth. We have been richly blessed through the Jewish people. God has used them to benefit all mankind. And he's not through. Joel 2.18, then, you notice the word then? Then will the Lord be... What is the then? After they've gone through this purging, after they've gone through this tribulation, this trial, this persecution, then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith. Watch this. And I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. That's an important verse, verse 19. I'll be back there in just a second. But I will remove far off from you the northern army and will drive him into the land barren and desolate with his face towards the east sea and his hinder part towards the utmost sea and his stink shall come up and his ill savor shall come up because he had done great things. Now this may have taken place when the Assyrians came down, when the Babylonians came down. I don't doubt that, but there is a future picture here as well of what's going to take place. And I think this lines up with Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now let me tell you, vast majority of those who are going to come against Israel in that battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 
are Muslim nations. Did you know, by the way, that God loves the Muslim? He wants them saved, but they can only be saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone as their Messiah, just like anybody else on the planet. Over the last couple decades, people have said, well, you think, you think Islam is going to be the one world religion? And uh, absolutely not. I don't believe that for a second. Okay, it's something that people are going to willingly embrace. Islam is not usually willingly embraced. It's embraced at the end of a sword. You convert to Islam or you die. This is what goes on in many countries today. Not every country, but many countries. No, it's not the one world religion. As a matter of fact, I personally believe, this is my opinion, I believe the end of Islam is coming at the battle of Gog and Magog. The nations, most of them Muslim, are going to be completely defeated by God. He's going to drive them into the sea, okay? They're going to die by the masses during this period of time, and the defeat will be so staggering, Islam is not going to survive that battle. That's what I, I believe. I believe that's true. You notice in verse 19, I told you we would come back to it. I will no more make your reproach among the heathen. Now, this did not take place during Joel's time. That's why I believe this is prophetic. Because only when the kingdom age comes will this be fulfilled. They are still a reproach today, but when Jesus comes at the end of the tribulation, it will be fulfilled. Verse 21, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. When? When Jesus comes to rule and reign, and there will be peace on the earth. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. In other words, the, the wilderness is going to come forth. It's going to blossom. For the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. That can't be the tribulation period. It's got to be after the victory. It's talking about the kingdom age. For he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. Now listen, there are movements today in false doctrine and false teaching going on. There's actually a movement called the latter rain movement. I don't know for sure. It sounds like it's probably a Pentecostal movement to me. Some of you may be more aware of it. I can tell you this, though, folks. It's not based on Scripture. What is it talking about? In the context, the former rain and the latter rain is simply talking about the fall and spring rains that came from God. They are a sign of divine blessing. In the context, it's just part of the, the plan of God. In other words, he's going to bring the former rains, the latter, the fall and the spring rains. Where? To the land. And the land is going to be blessed in again. And it's going to be green and it's going to break forth with vegetation and, and beauty and so forth. Those are all indicative of the kingdom age, that thousand year rule and reign. And the floor shall be full of wheat, prosperity. And the fats, means vats, okay, shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will, look at the next word, restore. That's kingdom talk. That's millennial talk. I will restore you the years that the locust hath eaten. Remember the locust from chapter 1? 
and the canker worm, and the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. Kind of a review. Seems like forever ago that we studied that. The devastation, the judgment that God brought on the land then. He said, you know what? A day is coming when I'm going to restore everything. It's going to be beautiful once again. That's the kingdom age. Now, who would have known it would be this far down the road? But here it is. And ye shall eat in plenty. Kind of like family camp. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. Isn't that interesting? Double emphasis there. Remember this. This is not referring to the church age in which we live today. This is not referring to being within the seven-year tribulation period. That's not going to be a time of blessing and prosperity. That's a time of judgment and chastisement and persecution. This has to be referring to the kingdom age. This has to do with the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, then the millennium. And of course, the focus here is on the millennium. And again, notice, my people shall never be ashamed. That is only going to be true during the kingdom age. Because until then, folks, there is a lot of shame and persecution towards the Jewish people. By the way, anti-Semitism is on the rise all over the world. Okay? Verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterwards. Interesting phrase, right? So we know he's talking about future. That's what it means. You you read that, we know it's talking about future. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit and I will show... Now remember, he's talking about the day of the Lord. And here's what you find with prophets many times. With the Old Testament prophets, they will move this way, and then they'll come back, and then they'll go this way, and then they'll come back. It's almost like they're wanting to make sure that they do a good job in covering everything and giving you details. Verse 30, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. So he's backed up now and he's talking about the tribulation again. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord hath said in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now, people read those verses and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Haven't I read that in Acts chapter 2? Yes. Didn't Peter talk about this? Yes. Didn't Peter say that what was going on in Acts 2 was a fulfillment of this passage? No. He did not say that. Why do I say that? Did all of this happen on the day of Pentecost? No. What Peter was getting at is this. In a small way, and in a type, maybe you could say it was, it happened. In a picture, there was a picture there, but it wasn't fulfilled. 
Here's what Peter was saying. What was going on is the same type of phenomenon as in Joel, in that there was a mighty move of the Holy Spirit. That did take place on the day of Pentecost. And he said this is basically what he's saying is, this is what Joel was talking about. And what is it? It was a mighty work of God. He wasn't saying this is the fulfillment of everything Joel said. You won't find that in the passage. People of the Pentecostal persuasion want to see it that way, or the charismatics, they want to see it that way, but that's not what it says. You see, folks, the church age was birthed then. After the church age, this will pick up. The full fulfillment of this passage will take place after the church is off the scene. Remember, Joel is not talking about the church age. Joel is talking about the day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's trouble, and the kingdom age. The church was a mystery. You will not find the church in the Old Testament talked about. So this is how it fits together. Notice that in verses 28 through 32, again, these things did not happen on the day of Pentecost. So what was he saying? He was saying, this is like what Joel talked about. The Holy Spirit did a mighty work. Yes, he did. On the day of Pentecost, yes, he did. Thousands got saved. People spoke in literal languages. It wasn't some angelic babbling. It was literal languages that they had never learned. They were speaking in foreign languages. Remember, they were tons of people, Jewish people from all over coming to Jerusalem for the feast. And that's what took place. And what did Peter do? He preached the gospel. That's what they did. Men back then did that. Which leads us to our last point today, and it is this. Where do we find ourselves today? Here's the answer. Where do we find ourselves today? Answer. Exactly where God said we would be. Exactly where God said we would be. You know what? I I would rather live today than any time in human history. I say, wait a minute. Don't you wish you would have lived back in Jesus? Only once in a while. Folks, listen, life was hard back then. Do you understand how easy we have it today in so many ways? How wonderful it is to go home and you go home and your home is decorated the way you want. You got your thermostat set where you want it. You may have videos that you like to to watch or you've got a nice stereo you like to listen to and you've got food. We've got grocery stores and you go there and there's aisle upon. You know, you go to any average grocery store. You go to something like the cereal aisle. Are you kidding me? You go overseas. And the grocery stores, most of them, not all of them, most of them are these small, small mom and pop places, and there's maybe one or two cereals on, on the shelf. Okay, that's common today all over the world. You don't see the prosperity that we have in America. Now, if you lived in Israel back then, vast majority of what we have in America today, it didn't exist. Life was not easy. Life was hard. They didn't have cars They didn't have uh, motorized, rechargeable scooters to have fun on. But where do we find ourselves? Exactly where God said we would be? See, here's where we're at. We are fast approaching the tribulation period. It could start tomorrow. We could be raptured out today. That being said, the rapture is at any moment as God said it would be. The Jewish people have been coming back to Israel, but they are coming back in unbelief belief. 
Don't think, oh, the Jews are coming back. They must have put their faith in Jesus as Messiah, and that's why they're coming back. The vast majority of them are not coming back. They're coming back because God's calling them back. Something in them is saying, go back, go back, go back. We have not been to Israel since the early 1990s. It's a long time ago now. But I can remember we talked to some people in Israel when we were there, people who lived there. And one couple had come from America why did you move back? They said there was just something that was telling us we need to come back. Whoa. Chills, right? What is, it's a divine work of God. He's getting them ready. It's going to be awful what they go through first, but the darkest hour is just before dawn, right? Go with me to Romans chapter 10. Here's the Apostle Paul some 2,000 years ago. Not quite, but close. And here's what he says in Romans 10, verse 1, talking about his fellow Jews. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. See, they're they're zealous in their religion, but they didn't understand the truth. Verse 3, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness... And going about to establish their own righteousness by works, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. How do you get the righteousness of God? Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law, the Mosaic law for righteousness, the commandments, to everyone that does what? Believes. Believes. How are you saved? By believing. Believing what? in what Christ has done on the cross. Let me show this to you. It's representing you and me. It represents sin. I love what Mark said this morning. Why do we always cover this? It's because people need the Lord. People need the Lord. Here we are. We're sinners. All of us. All of us, including me. Yet God loves us. God hates our sin. See, sin separates us from him. To get to heaven, you have to be without sin in the eyes of God. And none of us are. We're sinners. The Bible says, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. If we die with our sin, we'll be lost forever in hell because the wages of sin is death. Heaven's perfect. We're not. We can't go there until in the eyes of God, we're sinless. Good works will not take it away. The Bible says what? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Look at it with me. It says this. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's up here as well. You notice we're saved by grace. We need to be saved. If you're going to be saved, you have to be saved by the grace of God, God's unmerited kindness. How do you get it? Through faith. Through faith. Faith in what? In Jesus Christ. Here's what you put your faith in. Because there's nothing we could do to save ourselves, this hand representing Jesus Christ, sinless, he came into the world and when he went to the cross of Calvary, he took our sins upon himself and he died as our substitute in our place. Watch this. He paid for all of our sin, past, present, and future, when he died. He was buried, he rose from the grave, and he says, if you will believe, put your faith in him that he did that, For you, he will save you by his grace. For by grace you save through faith, and that not of yourselves. Can't save yourself. 
It is the gift of God. Gifts are free, not of works. Can't earn it. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Jews who are religious Jews today, how are they trying to get to heaven? By their works. They are ignorant of God's righteousness. They're seeking to establish their own righteousness. They haven't submitted to the righteousness of God. How? By putting their faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior. When you trust in Christ, he saves you by his grace. He gives you everlasting life. All your sins are taken away. All your sins are forgiven. Now look, if this is your condition when you die, then what's going to keep you out of heaven? Nothing. Nothing. He's already given you eternal life. You have no sins to separate you from the Lord and from heaven. Therefore, when you die, you go to be with the Lord. And it's the gift of God. If you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, would you please trust him as your Savior today? He's offering you eternal life as a gift. All he's asking you to do is trust him for it. You can have it. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.